But man, Cabbage Patch Kids. I think mine sat when, because I never made my bed as a kid. My mom always did. And yep. she would make it all like nice with the pillows and shit. And it always ended up on my bed. That fucking thing got tossed every night. <laughs> now, I didn't toss off on it, but it, like it, it tossed on the floor. <laughs> Show me on the Care Bear what you did to the Cabbage Patch doll. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney. Maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Infirmary Media Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and much like Brantley Foster and Carlton Whitfield, I am pulling double duties again this week as your host and judge. So let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for in this special Thanksgiving week experience. First off, the challenger. Dueling with Thanksgiving week of 1990, he may be the polite pride of St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada, but in this game... He'll kick you right in the Timbits. It's the host of the Miscast Commentary Podcast. It's Joe Finley. I was trying to think of something funny to say when you came to me, and that just, like, that topped anything, so I'm not even going to (laughs) bother. That was fantastic. Thank you again, as always, for having me on, guys. I consider this place my second home, and I enjoy it very much. I'm a dual citizen because of this place. (laughs) He's going to get his H-1 visa through this. (laughs) And his opponent, dueling with Thanksgiving week of 1983. He is the current Dueling Decades champion in his spare time. For his full-time job, he moonlights manually masturbating caged animals for artificial insemination. He is the one they call Man Crush. Who told you that? <laughs> Little birdie. <laughs> I'll have you know that's also a hobby. <laughs> yeah. That's not an actual, but I don't get paid for it, so I don't know if you'd call it my job. But uh, yes, I am coming at this one with, I'm coming at it. I'm coming at this one with uh, November 20th to 26th of 1983. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and for the Thanksgiving week experience, Hot Products is replaced with Black Friday deals. Hey, let me do, it's basically hot products. We just went off of Black Friday. Right. So yeah. don't turn it off just because we got rid of hot products. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people out there that just listen for the hot products. They're still there. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, stop, collaborate, and listen. It's time to play Dueling Decades. 
All right, guys. So for the official toss off this week, I have a original 1990s rock the vote pin. So we're going to flip this. Joe, you are the challenger. Call in the air. Would you like the rock the vote side or would you like something I don't want to touch because it may give me tetanus? (laughs) Do you want to rock the vote or rock the tetanus? I want to rock the tetanus. We're flipping it. And it is the tetanus. <laughs> I was waiting for you to slam that on your hand and just scream. <laughs> That's like using a one of them trick nickels or something. It's like all weighted <laughs> fucking wrong and shit. All right, Joe Finley, you have control of the board. What category would you like to go with first? All right. We are going to go with the one that I always take the most shit for. We're going to go to the news. Oh, God. Who died this time? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> This no, this time, Joe. I'm banning I, you right now. This is it. I'm putting the, my foot down. You are now banned from any sad anything. Doesn't matter what category it is. Actually, you know what? I'm making a precedent right now. Let's do this, Mark. No more <laughs> bad news at all. I don't know about that. Oh, come on, <laughs> man. You you just lose the round anyway. I mean, it's it's I don't know. We'll we'll talk about. It. You got to be careful if you bring the sadness. No, but this is, I'm going to say, because this this is, I'm transitioning from a sad boy to a happy boy. And uh, what happens here is these are, these news articles are transitioning out of sad. So they're no longer sad. Oh, they're God, on their sad. way to being happy. It's the best I can do. I suffer from severe depression. Everything I see is total darkness. So this is great. This to me is fucking Disneyland. I feel your pain. <laughs> So here we go. So the first thing we're going to start with is on November 18th. I'm doing the 18th to the 24th, by the way. I did not mention that. Um, November 18th, West Point, after 188 years of being open, abolishes hazing of their first-year cadets. They had a large uh, congressional hearing about all of this, and such witnesses were brought forth as Douglas MacArthur, George Patton, and Dwight Eisenhower, all of whom recounted times being... Uh, hazed in their times at West Point, uh, being knocked unconscious, uh, convulsing on the ground, be, uh, being made to do squats on broken glass. Uh, one uh, one member actually died. I know, see, right? Uh, somebody had to die, but somebody uh, somebody died during their hazing uh, years and years ago. And uh, while he died after his time at West Point, it was it all was pointed back to that. So this was the day, though, that West Point officially announced that their hazing policy would be reversed, or as the uh, article said, an about face was ordered. Yeah, you know what? Like, it still goes on. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guarantee it's just not as accepted. When I, I was, uh, I served from 2003 to 2007. It was supposed to be abolished then too. It was not. So yeah, I don't know about the uh, the doing. Uh, was it burpees in glass? What did you say? Squats? What they they were making them do like squats on broken glass, like in holding the squat and stuff like that. According to the article, hey, at least they weren't walking on walking on broken glass. <laughs> <laughs> That's Naval Academy. All right, you can have oh, this. Okay. <laughs> All right, Joe. My second story uh, covers several days. From this week, from the 19th to the 21st, Canada and the U.S. went to Europe and met with 32 other European countries to uh, sign the Charter of Paris for a new Europe, formally ending the Cold War. 
So they met with a number of Eastern and Western European countries, and they drafted uh, new treaties, and they uh, established new organizations to help the Eastern Eastern Europe uh, develop free elections, essentially kind of bring them into the Western fold. Now, while the USSR was still in the midst of uh, their disillusion, uh, they... The involvement of all the countries uh, happened at this time, and on the 21st, the charter was ratified. So that is my big one. So the formal end of the Cold War, and West Point says they're going to be nicer. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why they ended the Cold War. Yes. I thought the Cold War basically ended when the Berlin Wall came down in 91. That was like the unofficial end. It's like like everything. It's always about treaties and stuff like that, right? Yeah, but was David Hasselhoff at the fucking treaty signing? He probably was. I doubt it. No, it was in Paris. If it, it was Jerry, Jerry <laughs> Lewis was in was, Germany. Yeah, yeah J- Jerry Lewis was at this signing. <laughs> we need Jerry Lewis to be here. Why? Well, that's Jerry Lewis. Yes. And on a very weird side note of that, Margaret Thatcher was in the midst of losing her power while she was at this meeting. She actually uh, lost her leadership and ended up resigning as prime wow. minister while while this was going on. All right, man crush. That's over to you for the news round. What do you got for your first offering? All right. Well, first off, I'm happy that nobody died in the making of Toast News. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. It wasn't a hot war. It was cold war. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, he's doing 1990. I have 83, seven years apart. But we're still we're going to be talking about a lot of the same things, I think, just by what you said about the cold war. Uh, November 23rd, 1983. Uh, Lars Eric Nelson. He wrote an article that talks about excessive spending. Specifically, Uncle Sam's excessive spending. Uh, the title of the article is Uncle Sam's $780 Screwdriver. And in the article, he highlights the $780 screwdriver and also an $1,800 piece of cardboard that was used to see a fluorescent screen better. Two insanely expensive examples of items that were being purchased by the United States Navy. Just two of 2.1 million supplies that the Navy was purchasing in 1983. So Secretary of the Navy at the time, John Lehman, produced these and other items as a show and tell uh, for the Pentagon on November 22nd to demonstrate the Reagan administration's crackdown on waste in its $250 billion defense budget. And since they were still in the midst of the Cold War, the administration wanted to buy new battleships. They wanted to buy three more Air Force carriers or Air Force carriers, new aircraft carriers. Uh, but it just it wasn't feasible without eliminating the excess spending that was going on. The more they were forced to spend on screwdrivers and eighteen hundred dollar pieces of cardboard, the less they could spend on ships and guns and whatever else they needed. Uh, therefore, at this time, the Navy abandoned their procurement techniques and in some cases, they change our suppliers completely. Uh, the once $780 screwdriver would now cost $45, which is still kind of excessive when you think about it, but it's a limited production item, supposedly. Uh, the cardboard hood uh, for looking at the fluorescence will come in at $60 instead of $1,800. And a five-pound chunk of rubber and uh, the molded nose of the torpedo would cost the taxpayer $7.50 Instead of the current $381. Damn, that's a Black Friday deal right there. (laughs) A Westinghouse clamp, like the clamp that you'd use to hold your oil filter on your car, will drop from $67.20 to $1.80. The article goes on and on and on with these examples. And I can attest 
to this still occurring in 2004 when I was in the Marines, we had this crappy plastic sledgehammer uh, that was part of uh, an antenna kit that we had. And they gave us like an order form for like replacement parts when we were deployed. And I remember the prices being on there and it was 80 fucking dollars for it looked like a dollar store mallet. It was nothing good. It was I had like a yellow handle, which wasn't even tactical. Fucking ridiculous. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting because at what point did it switch back or did it really switch back? But I mean, the article I, I found really interesting. So that's why I threw that one up there. And uh, for my second story, same day. November 23rd, 1983, uh, the article is titled Video Techs Now Entering the Picture. And I picked this one for the folks that are missing out on hot products. Eric Cluley, that's for you. Uh, they love hearing about this stuff. It's all they, they tell us about. And uh, knowing Eric, he probably turned it off if we did sports. Instead, maybe he'll keep it on. I don't know. The article is all about this Video Techs and Viewtron thing. I know it, it sounds a lot like characters from Transformers, but they aren't. So just hang with me here. Uh, the video text was actually a machine that would connect to another machine via modem, and then that would provide some kind of interactive content. So maybe you would connect and you get like live stock feeds up to the minute news feeds, maybe a game. Basically, video tech was a decade ahead of its time. So AT&T identified all the possibilities that video tech could offer, and then they launched Viewtron. And it was the first computerized electronic two-way communication service in the United States, initially, when this was put out, you needed the video tech to connect to the Viewtron. So that's why I have both. And that's why she talks about both in this article. And the article by Sylvia Porter, she talks about how the Viewtron debuting in the Miami area and how AT&T is predicting it's going to change the way we shop, bank, educate, amuse ourselves, and connect with friends and family. I mean, I would concur that in 1983, they were a little bit ahead of their time here. Uh, but this is how she describes it. The video tech system uses a small home terminal to communicate via your telephone line to TV set to a central computer that has up-to-date stored information. Sounds a hell of a lot like the internet, doesn't it? Not exactly the internet, but it's well on its way. And this is what paved the road for companies like Prodigy, CompuServe, QLink, AOL, the whole fucking slew of them that were out, uh, you know, towards the end of the 80s and the 90s until obviously... We all started using the internet, and look how we're talking now. Uh, so those are my two news articles for you. We got the uh, the video tech and the Viewtron, and we have excess government spending. Who would have, who would have known? <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's recap. 1990, Thanksgiving week. Joe, you had uh, West Point finally ending the horrible traditions of hazing, or did they? You know what? Let me let me just throw this out. His first story and my first story are almost the same. It's just to show everyone like, oh, we're changing. Not really. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for making my next point for me, man. Crush. <laughs> you <welcome. But> Yes. <laughs> and then you had the end of the Cold War, Joe. Uh, that's yeah. actually a pretty big story. Man Crush, over to you in 1983. Again, of course, your story. Much like Joe's story, you know, we're talking about curtailing excess government spending versus ending hazing. Nothing really changed there. So I'm going to cancel those two stories out. So really what we're looking at here is Videotechs and Viewtron versus the end of the Cold War. Now, see, I get where you're going with the Videotechs and the Viewtron. That actually is a really important piece of technology. Uh, what that actually was able to do, like you said, for banks wall street uh sports bookies i mean that's instant information coming right over 
But when you match that up against what the end of the Cold War meant for Eastern Europe and for the United States as well, it's really a monumental event. So, Joe, I got to give you one point for the first round. Ooh, you have you. control of the board. What category would you like to go with next, man? Oh, my God. I did not think I was going to win this round, so I didn't think I would have to make this decision. Um, <laughs> oh, Lordy, Lordy, Lordy. Uh, let's jump into Black Friday. All right, Black Friday. Okay. The first one was a toy that was actually released prior to this time period, but it actually got a sudden burst for the holidays when A a live-action movie about it was released during the spring, and B, they released a new series of these toys, which made, which sold 30 million units during the total of the year and became the number one selling toy of the holiday season. I bring you the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ah, and yes. they were the they were the number one selling toy of 1990. They released a special series of 25 toys that included expanded universe characters such as the infamous Panda Con, Napoleon Bonafrog, Fugitoid, and Mutagen Man, as well as uh, various uh, different versions of your regular turtles, including Samurai Leo, Astronaut Raph, and uh, the turtles where you could store in their shells all these different types of things on top of their regular original series, but that was the big toy going on, selling like hotcakes over the holiday season for all the little kitties, including yours truly, who had just turned nine years old for the Christmas season. But my next one, I don't know, I'm hoping that will be uh, kind to me, because as far as I know, there's no Black Friday in Japan, but on November 22nd, the Super Famicom was released in the beautiful country of Japan. Uh, it was released with famed games of our beautiful Super Nintendo, F-Zero and Super Mario World. Uh, it was about nine months later released to the rest of the world and actually became the number one selling toy of the following holiday season. So that just happened to be the day that it was released in Japan. So that and Ninja Turtles, that's... That's how I celebrated Thanksgiving had I been in Japan. <laughs> All right, Man Crush, what do you have for Black Friday deals? All right, so this is 1983. So even though it's Black Friday, it's still not called Black Friday everywhere just yet in 1983. There's a whole lot of like putting retails in black talk that popped up in Philly a couple years prior to this, but there's still a lot of states just calling it a Thanksgiving sale. I don't know. Joe, what was yours in 90? It was the same. I think it was 94 where it started to spread more countrywide. I think it had made it as far as Philly and Jersey by the time. Right. Okay. So that's pretty much the same thing as 83. It's pretty wild because I always thought that the term was utilized since the 50s, but I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to throw out there just as a caveat, I could have went with the Famicom that was released in Japan uh, <laughs> also this fall of uh, 1983, uh, which mm -hmm. also came out with Super Mario Brothers. But I didn't because it's fucking Japan. So <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. They're real big on Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> huge. Uh, November 25th, 1983. Uh, you know, so even without the moniker Black Friday, I'd say it's still probably one of the most storied Black Fridays in the last 40 years. Maybe even like you might want to call it like Black and Blue Friday if you ventured <laughs> out for one of these items during this period. Uh, the first of my two selections is none other than a stuffed animal. 
It was released in the spring of 1983, and over the course of the year, these stuffed animals had a set of books, they had bikes, pajamas, pillows, Play-Doh kits, all kinds of accessories, and their own television special. They proved to be so popular that year that they got their own cartoon a couple years later in 1985. Uh, This item was normally priced anywhere from $14.99 to $19.99, around $40 in 2019. Uh, This was the 13-inch Care Bear. Oh, that, okay. And it went for $9.99 on this Black Friday special that I found when combining it with a $1.50 mail-in rebate. Like, who the <laughs> fuck was going to mail that in? Did anybody ever do those mail-in rebates? I, I wish I did for some, like, uh, the cool, like, uh, G.I. Joe stuff that they used to have. Like, mm-hmm. if you mailed in the rebate, you got, like, a special uh, Bazooka Joe or some shit. Well, yeah, that's one thing, but to get a dollar fifty back, fuck that. Yeah, a check for a dollar fifty. <laughs> then you'd have to drive to the bank to cash a check. Well, you could yeah. pair that check for a dollar fifty with all the other checks from your grandma for a dollar fifty. She gave me like three dollars. I think it was. Oh, okay, baller. It was a check. Uh, but one reason I think these were so popular that season is because ultimately they became like the substitution toy that holiday season, and you'll see what I mean. Because as popular as the Care Bears were in 1983, is dwarfed by one particular toy, and that particular toy went on to sell $60 million worth of these ugly, squished-faced orphans that nearly everyone needed, apparently, for some reason. And everyone's <laughs> parents would push, would punch somebody in the fucking mouth for. And uh, it, it, in 2019, we have the Popeye's chicken sandwich causing fight breakouts in 1983. <laughs> That distinction would be held by Coleco's Cabbage Patch Kids. Uh, they were retailing for about $30, close to $80 in 2019. So if you look at that, that's a fucking expensive doll, even retail-wise. Uh, but there were no sales. The incentive here on Black Friday for these were that they were in stock, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, and if they were, they lasted minutes. And on the secondary market, these people were selling these for hundreds of dollars. I remember, I think... We might have even talked about this before. People were buying them for like a grand for these yeah. stupid fucking dolls. It's absolutely insane. Biggest product, probably biggest toy product of that season, maybe ever. I, you know, and it's just crazy. I had this story that I found when I was looking for stuff. It was about a consumer store that was set to open in Fishkill, New York. This came out of Poughkeepsie Journal, I think. And there were rumors. Now, keep in mind. People, well, they did have the the video tech and uh, Videotron, maybe, <laughs> but uh, for the most part, this was all word of mouth rumor shit that people were just talking about the water cooler and things like that. But people were talking about that they had twenty four dolls at this consumers that was set to open on that Monday, the twenty first. Three hundred people showed up to the store only to find out that the town, I believe it was the town of Fishkill, would not let them open because they didn't have a letter of occupancy for the store. And it almost started a riot. So just think (laughs) about that. There's no Internet. This is just people calling people going, oh, the consumers is opening. Now, if you know anything about consumers and catalog ordering, these stores didn't really carry that much product. Some of the stuff they had in the back, but other shit you just order out of a catalog, you had to wait for it to come in. So they were right. carrying these 24 Cabbage Patch Kids. Can you imagine 300 people got in the store and just went to the counter to try to get this thing? Who are they punching? Oh. The people that work there? Well, can you imagine just them lining up to get to each catalog? There's only like six to eight catalogs, yeah, depending exactly. on the size of the store. Yeah, this is no service merchandise that had more of a display. Like Consumers was a pretty strict 
catalog ordering store with a handful of items in the back. So I, I found that article to be like really telling. Then there was another article about <laughs> the, the title of this article is they were going to kill me for a doll. It was uh, <laughs> out of Miami. Uh, shoppers from a crowd of 150 knocked down a 75 year old man who had been waiting since 8 a.m. at one branch of a department store chain that was selling moon face cabbage patch dolls for twenty four eighty eight. He almost died over that. Jeez. But that's uh, that's what I'm bringing to the table. It was either him or me. <laughs> yeah, I needed that fucking cabbage patch kid. Xavier Roberts is a god. <laughs> <laughs> or the devil. We're really not sure yet. Time will tell on that one. All right, so let's recap this round for Black Friday deals. Uh, 1990, Joe, you had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Absolutely massive. That was such a big thing for my youth and all of my friends. Everybody listening to this, I'm sure we all had Ninja Turtles. Uh, and then the Super Famicom, another dynamic system. Unfortunately, it was the release in Japan, but nonetheless, huge monumental system, changed gaming. 1983, Man Crush, you had the release of the Care Bears. Now, was this the 10-inch or the 12-inch? No, they were 13-inch. The 13-inch, 13 13 okay. So these are the, the big full-size ones. You know what's interesting about Care Bears, real quick? This is before their show. So they put this out by right. itself, you know, because it started as like a book or some shit like that. Mm-hmm. And then it turned into the Cabbage, cabbage, uh, the cabbage Patch. They're stuck in my head. Yeah. It started as the uh, the Care Bears toy line. And they put out just like a one-off like television special. And then two years later, they got the Care Bears and they went off for like years. Yeah. But anyhow, yeah. good. A little little sidebar, you know who produced the Care Bears TV show? The company uh, I work for. No shit. Yeah, Nelvana. Oh, well, yeah. I work for the parent company of Nelvana, but we're all we're all under the same umbrella, baby. All those people don't show up to work, I heard. Oh yeah. They're around. <laughs> Why well, I've I've held the the Emmy for the animated Beetlejuice which is sitting up in our uh, eighth floor lobby thing. Oh, very nice. All right, so Man Crush, you also come with Cabbage Patch Kids. Man, I don't I don't know how I feel about this one. It's monumental, it's huge, but man, Cabbage Patch Kids? I, I hated Cabbage Patch Kids, even though I had one, and I think we've talked about this on the show before. If you're a guy and you had a Cabbage Patch Kid, <laughs> you did some fucked up shit to it. Like mine, <laughs> I made a... <laughs> I made a mask. You remember like the uh, the wrestler Starman from the old NES pro wrestling game? Oh, yeah. I, I made a mask like that and then took a permanent marker and drew a big star on his face and colored it in. Well, of course, the permanent marker seeped through and right onto the face of the Cabbage Patch doll, completely ruining it. So <laughs> I had one, too. I don't know why. And what did you do with yours, Man Crush? I don't, th- I don't, I don't think I did anything with it. Like it was one of those things. I think where if a parent got it, they thought they were giving their kid like this fucking treasure, yeah. whether they wanted it or not, just because it was all over the news. Right. Yeah. I, I think mine sat when because I never made my bed as a kid. My mom always did, and yep. she would make it all like nice with the pillows and shit. And it always ended up on my bed. That fucking thing got tossed every night. <laughs> no, I didn't toss off on it, but it, like it tossed on the floor. Show me on the Care Bear what you did to the Cabbage Patch doll. <laughs> it was kind of fun, though, when He-Man would kick the shit out of the giant baby. That was a fun game to play. So. 
all of that being said, Man Crush, I got to give you this round. 83 Care Bears, yep. Cabbage Patch Kids. I don't know if there's a hotter product in the 80s than those two things. My wife is a huge Care Bears fan. I got a Care Bear sitting in my living room downstairs. I got to go with 83 on this round. I didn't realize they were as big. Yeah, they were oh, like yeah. 13 inches. No, no, no. I don't mean... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like as monumental of a product, like the I don't, I didn't even take down the amounts, but I think between eighty three and eighty seven, it was something like over a billion dollars in fucking Care Bears, yeah. some crazy shit like that. It's insane. Absolutely huge. All right, man, crush. You tie up the game at one apiece, regain control of the board. What category would you like next for the final one point round? Uh, I'm gonna go music. November twenty first, nineteen eighty three. We got the release. The third studio album by this English new wave rock band. Uh, they took the world by storm with their previous album, Rio. And this album went two times platinum in the United States, featured two top 10 singles on the Billboard Hot 100, with Union of the Snake peaking at number three and New Moon on Monday at number 10. The biggest single, of course, from the album is The Reflex. Uh, they hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, which is the band's first ever song to go to number one. Okay. I don't know if I'm familiar with this song. How does this one go? The reflex. <laughs> it's something oh, like that. Okay. Yeah, I know that one now. Do you want me to do it again? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Give me the second chorus. It's uh it's one of those songs where you never know the words except for the reflex and the rest is just him singing in a high pitched voice. <laughs> yes. It's nothing like a view to a kill, which is their other no. their other only other number one hit which came out a couple years later for the Bond soundtrack and the only number one hit for Bond ever. Uh, but the album that I'm talking about, and I'm I'm sure Mark figured it out by now, is uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger by Duran Duran. Um, and I was a little shocked to learn that the Reflex was their first number one hit. I thought for sure it would have been Rio or Hungry Like the Wolf, but those would come in at number 14, number five, respectively. So there's that. Uh, so that was the first album I had. Uh, and the second one, November 21st, 1983, same time, uh, which happened to be a Monday, if you wanted to know that. Now, I'm pretty sure I've heard Mark tell me before that he didn't like this band, so I have that going against me already. But this was the band's first live album <laughs> and their fourth overall album. Uh, it's partially recorded at Red Rocks, Germany, and Boston. And the album consisted of eight songs. It went two times platinum and it cemented the band as a big time musical act at the time in 1983. The album is U2's Under a Blood Red Sky, which is it's a really good live album. Uh, in 1983, U2 is basically still in its infancy. War was huge for them. Like it came out the same year. But they were nowhere near the megalithic band that it would become uh, in the next couple of years. Uh, my sister was a huge U2 fan when I was growing up. So I heard Boy, War, Joshua Tree, like all the time. And, but when you listen to this album, you could just tell that the band had that it factor. For You know, you ever go to a concert and you see someone for the first time and you go, wow, these guys are fucking good. You oh, know, yeah. It, yeah. and it just you're, that's what you got from this album. And then a couple years later, you get... um Streets Have No Name, where he's singing it on the top of the roof of that building and like 30,000 people showed up or some shit. Yeah. So like within a couple of years, they just blew up. And but that's what this album was for you, too. And, you know, in reading a couple of reviews for the concerts uh, about the war tour from 83, uh, that's where this was recorded from. You had people saying that it was the best live act of 1983 was you, too. 
Uh, I went back to Spotify, I listened to it today, and I would have to agree. It's fucking good. It's eight songs. The performances, they're all powerful. The crowds are eating it up. Even songs that I wasn't familiar with, I was jamming out to, and that's the mark of an excellent band, especially in 83, where they hadn't hit that point yet. They had one big album, so you don't know what's going to come next. And a review from Rolling Stone's Christopher Conley on the album, uh, he said, the one high point, Sunday Bloody Sunday, it may not be a rebel song, as Bono tells a presumably baffled German audience, but is practically everything else. An anguished, thoughtful synthesis of religious and political beliefs backed by bone-crushing arena rock riff of the decade. This is Stairway to Heaven for Smart People, and it kicks under a blood-red sky over the rainbow. So those are my two picks for uh, that week in November of 1983. Duran Duran and U2. All right, Joe, over to you. What do you got for the music round, man? All right, well, we're going to start with an odd choice that has a good reason for it. Uh, on November 24th, the last day of my week, Madonna's Immaculate Collection debuts at number one on the UK charts ahead of when it uh, debuted on the US charts. And the reason that I'm even bringing up a Greatest Hits album is because it had two brand new songs on it. One was Rescue Me, and the other one was Justify My Love. And anybody who knows Justify My Love, which was just a little bit later that week, that ended up getting banned from M MTV for having nudity and sex and androgyny, man-on-man, uh, girl-on-girl, all sorts of stuff. And it started a whole thing. She ended up going on Dateline in December to defend it, and that was the first place that the uh, video actually aired in its entirety. As well, she ended up selling the music video as a home video, and it sold uh, quite a few copies and made her a whole lot of money. But something that would be considered quite tame by today's standards uh, for a music video uh, was flat out banned from a network that brought you Teen Mom. So <laughs> <laughs> wasn't she like nude on a corner in the video or some shit? Yeah, I, I vaguely. Yeah, remember. you could flat out see through her shirt and all this kind of stuff. But that's why this one makes my list. Madonna's Immaculate Collection, number one on the UK charts, bringing us Justify My Love and arguably the biggest controversy of her musical career. Oh, I don't know about biggest controversy, but maybe well of the like, year. I know, of her life, no. But I think just as <laughs> her of her music in and of itself. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing, the religious thing, uh, a couple years before mm. was pretty big. Like a prayer, like, yeah, like a prayer. That was pretty big. Yeah, but that video aired. <laughs> uh, yeah, it did. True. <laughs> yeah, it was also a better song, like a much better song. Oh, way better. <laughs> One of them's on my Spotify. The other one's not. <laughs> <laughs> do you know it should be on your spotify though what it probably is this show right here if you're listening to the show if you don't know we're on spotify so you can subscribe to the show and then go listen to some of the music that we pick in the music round and you don't even have to switch apps genius what? and i'm not trying to jump on that whole train but miscast commentary also on spotify so just just so hook up to both of us and just one after the next you make sure you, you get it that's right tag team us Oh. Wait, no, that doesn't no. sound right. No, you know what? Yeah, do it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Play them both at the same time. Yeah, exactly. I just talked about it. I just talked about Justify My Love. You think I care? <laughs> <laughs> All right. But my next one, one of the bigger musical stories of the 90s, November 19th, the trustees of the Grammys vote to revoke the Grammy for Best New Artist to Millie Vanilli. 
This was the day that they lost their award after a lip sync scandal started, which actually started with a technical glitch during a performance at Radio City Music Hall, uh, where their tape started playing when only one of the performers was on stage and full vocals were in play and all that. Rumors started to circulate that they uh, not only were not performing live ever, but that they probably did not perform on their own album. Uh, That information came to light when the producer, Frank Farian, just flat out admitted it because Fab and Rob, great names, are, um, (laughs) they demanded to sing on their next album. So he came, he had to come clean. (laughs) Anything but that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And uh, the compromise that they tried to come up with for uh, losing the Grammy was actually to have a press conference and hand their Grammy over to the actual singers on the album, Brad Howell, Johnny Davis, and Charles Shaw, who did the rap part of Girl, You Know It's True. Uh, But the trustees of the Grammys just voted to just flat out revoke the award. Yeah, like, why didn't they give it to the runner up or something? I I saw this story a couple days ago and we actually posted something on our Facebook. I noticed that and I already had it. Thank God I was going to put something down, but I didn't want to show my hand. (laughs) Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things. And it's funny when you read the comments on that post, because there's people defending them. Like how, (laughs) like, how could you defend them? Yeah. They should have just gave the Grammys to the two dudes that sang the song in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Done deal. Cause it was for best, best new artist. Yeah. So they could have been new artists. Like, come on. Stupid. Yeah. Yeah. The gorillas could have won a Grammy, even though they're just animated characters. (laughs) True. Be kind of hard to hand it to him. That'd be fine. We'll figure it out. All right. So let's head over to the judgment for this round. Uh, 1990, you had uh, Madonna's Immaculate Conception. I mean, collection, (laughs) which had the Justify My Love single on it. I do remember that song quite a bit. Not my favorite Madonna song, but definitely not my least favorite. And uh, Millie Vanilli. Man, I remember that story. That was huge. That really exposed a lot of things in the music industry. But did it change anything? Again, (laughs) this is a pattern I'm seeing develop through the episode here. We got these huge monumental stories, but nothing changed because of them. Does lip syncing still go on? Of course. I think it actually goes on more now than it did back in the days of Millie Vanilli. Well, now they could just cover it up with, like, auto-tune or whatever else if they sound like shit. Right. Nobody sings anyway now. You just mumble or talk <laughs> monotone. <laughs> you just speak. Right. So let's take a look at 1983. You had Duran Duran with The Reflex. Not the best Duran Duran album, but I really do like The Reflex. It's one of those Duran Duran songs that definitely gets stuck in your head. You're right about that. And then you too, Under a Blood Red Sky. Now, see, Man Crush, you don't think I like you, too. And I don't know where you get this I thought from. you told me you didn't like them and Bono and you're like he's full of shit or some shit like that. No, was- man, I'm actually a huge U2 fan. Oh, I thought it was you. Maybe it was Bo that said you didn't like U2. <laughs> so and Under a Blood Red Sky is a fantastic album. Gloria starts off oh, that it's album. Amazing. You can't go wrong with that one. I will follow. The highlight for me, of course, is New Year's Day. Mm. I think that's just an underrated track from that album. But, Joe, out of all of these albums, I only owned one of them. And it wasn't New Year's Day. It was Millie Vanilli. My sister owned the U2 album. And I picked that one up as soon as I discarded that Millie Vanilli shit when I realized they lip-synced all those lyrics. So, (laughs) Man Crush, 
you win this round. I'm sorry, Joe, but that U2 album is absolutely stellar. And that Duran Duran single is no slouch to begin with. The Madonna song I like, but it is a greatest hits album. So I got to knock you down a couple of points for that. If it was a full album and it had that single and a few of her other singles, maybe you would have got that one there. The Millie Vanilli album, I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I had that cassette. I played it all the time until this news story popped. And then I threw that shit in the trash and said, these guys are fake, just like everybody else did. (laughs) So Man Crush, you take the lead two to one heading into the first two point rounds. Where do you want to go, man? I'm uh, I'm actually glad that I didn't pick the uh, the Who's uh, greatest hits that came out. I could have picked that. <laughs> <laughs> I might have changed around a little bit. Um, what do we have left here? We have movies and television. You want to just we'll finish up on movies. Fuck it. Gold school. Yeah, we haven't done that in a while. <laughs> uh, television. Yeah, because weirdly it's been coming up in the middle rounds. I like when it like starts off or ends things. It's just it's a strategy, man. Someone figured it out early on. I'm not going to say who it is, <laughs> but if you go back and listen to some of the past episodes, maybe the last 10, 12 episodes, you'll see a pattern developing. If you take movies in the earlier rounds. You win the game. Just throwing that out there. Well, neither one of us did, so let's see what happens. All right. Do we both lose? (laughs) Right. (laughs) All right. So television, uh, 1983, November 24th, 1983, to be exact. Uh, It's Thanksgiving Day of 1983. Obviously, we had the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, but that happens every fucking year, and this one was no different. Uh, What we did get was the first annual Starcade wrestling event on closed circuit television for the first time. Not quite a full pay-per-view event. Uh, with these television events, you need to go to a location that was getting like a live feed via satellite or be like Mark James and uh, have a satellite of your own and then you can just watch it. Uh, so right. essentially, <laughs> Starcade 83 was the first televised event of its kind for pro wrestling occurring two years prior to WrestleMania 1. The event was put on by the National Wrestling Alliance and Jim Crockett Promotions and would feature a title match between the champion Harley Race and the challenger Ric Flair. Uh, Spoiler alert, Ric Flair would go on to win the belt from Harley Race, his second such time with the championship. Isn't that amazing to hear that it was his (laughs) second time with the the championship in 83? Now, did he ever win the title again after that? He did a few times. Matter of fact, like within the course of when I was reading this, they uh, they went on like a worldwide tour during this. And there was uh, just one night. I forgot where they were. He just decided "Ah, I'm going to let Harley race win it tonight just to like build up some momentum wherever the fuck they were in the Philippines or wherever the fuck. And uh, the next day they just swapped it back. But NWA for a while didn't even recognize that one. But I guess. Now they do, because what did he have it? 16 times? 16 times, yeah. He was a 16-time champion. That's across his career, different belts. Uh, But Starcade would run up to the year 2000 when World Championship Wrestling was bought out by WWE. But it was brought back in 2017. And there's another one coming up on December 1st. So Starcade still has legs, still going on. Uh, November 20th, 1983. Uh, We get a, a TV program that comes out about the Cold War during the Cold War. And it proves that people were legitimately terrified of World War III. And it could start at any given minute. And how do I know this? 
It's probably because 100 million people, 62% share of the 1983 viewing audience, tuned in to watch the frightening nuclear depiction the day after. Again, something that I just posted on our Facebook uh, a couple days back. Actually, it might have been yesterday. Uh, Still the highest rated TV movie of all time from what I could find. And you're probably not going to beat it these days in 2019 because the ratings don't even compare. But it's right up there also with some of the biggest sporting events in history. When I was in kindergarten, when this movie uh, premiered on TV, and I vividly remember our teacher, Mrs. Brown, sitting us down in the, at like, you know, where this, that story time area when you're in kindergarten? Yeah. She brought us over there and explained the movie and the Cold War and how it's only a movie. We shouldn't really be frightened that much. But the, the funny thing is, we're fucking five. I would say that more uh, than half of the class at that point watched the day after on television with their families that Sunday. Yeah. Like as five-year-olds, I still remember coming in the next day on that Monday, like right before Thanksgiving, and we were talking about, did you watch like freaking Kansas blow up or wherever? It was somewhere in the Midwest. I remember that like, was it Missouri or whatever it was? It was fucking insane. But anyhow, I got an article from um, the Poughkeepsie Journal again. It's something I like to go to because their news is pretty good. And it's easy to find. So I was I stick to the Poughkeepsie Journal uh, and they were saying that more than 500 New York state residents contacted WOKR TV in Rochester seeking solace on what they had just watched. And not only that, they were calling local police stations and asking for information on survive, like what to do to survive a nuclear nightmare like that. How many TV wow. shows can you list that had that type of effect where you had to call the station or call a police station to figure out how to fucking live afterwards. <laughs> Miss Cleo, maybe. It's but. insane. Love Island, definitely. Well, like I said, we posted this the other day, and most of the people who remembered watching it agreed with how badly this affected them at the time. But of course, there was that 10%. They were all like, man, that shit wasn't scary at all. What's the big deal, man? I fuck with nukes all the time. You fucking yeah. you gotta love social media. There's always a ten percent of fucking douchebags. You're full of shit. Like if you were a kid and you were watching that, you were like, "What the fuck?" Yeah. With the amount of people that watched this the day it debuted, can you imagine what it was like if we would have had social media oh the morning after? Yeah, that's wow. the thing. There. Yeah, good point. There's no internet. You just went into the water cooler the next day and you were like, "Yo, we're gonna die." Like, what do we do? <laughs> I ain't even going into work. <laughs> Fuck this shit. Yeah, I'm quitting. <laughs> Moving to the woods. But those are my two picks. Uh, first one, we got Starcade 83. Uh, first thing, kind of, it's not real. I don't want to call it the first pay-per-view because you can't, but it's right. the closest thing you're going to get right there for wrestling in 83. And then, of course, uh, the day after. All right, Joe. Over to you. What do you got, man? All right, well, the first thing I have for you is a miniseries that aired on ABC from November 18th to the 20th. Uh, It was a rare, a very rare horror miniseries of the time, directed by Tommy Lee Wallace, famed uh, director of Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, also worked on Halloween, The Fog, Assault on Precinct 13. I give you Stephen King's It, aired during Sweeps Week, November 1990. Uh, this movie starred 
Tim Curry as Pennywise, featured John Ritter, Annette O'Toole, and Harry Anderson as the adult characters, and featured very early performances from Jonathan Brandis and Seth Green. Uh, it was the number one program with 30 million viewers uh, over the week, and it was ABC's biggest success of the entire year. Uh, a huge risk for ABC to run such a, like such subject matter, given that they're a very family-based channel, very big risk for any channel to air something that was horror-based, and a big risk for Stephen King, who licensed out his own works for something that wasn't a movie. And he had quite a battle with ABC because they didn't want to screen it for him prior to doing it. And he said he would refuse to do any press for it if he didn't get to see it first because it was his product and he wanted to be it. And I think they were afraid to show it to him, but it was a highly viewed program. And despite its uh, news cut-ins from uh, from George Bush visiting Iraq and all these other th- all these other little problems that it had, it was the highest viewed program of that week. Uh, the next thing I give you, I'm actually going to take you to wrestling, which is the first time I have done this. Yes, <laughs> I think it's the first time anybody but us has brought wrestling to the table. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to bring you to the 1990 Survivor Series. This is still back at a time when all of the matches were Survivor Series matches. There wasn't a championship match at the end or anything like that. It was the Survivor Series where you saw both Hulk Hogan and Ted DiBiase do double duty on two different teams. And the biggest part of it, probably the only real important part of it, the debut of the dead man, The Undertaker, debuted with the WWF at the time on this day. He teamed up with the Million Dollar Man, Honky Tonk Man, and Greg the Hammer Valentine to defeat Bret Hart, Jim the Anvil Neidhart, Dusty Rhodes, and Coco Beware in a Survivor Series match. He eliminated two people and then just walked out of the ring and walked away with Brother Love. He was counted out and his team went on to win. Uh, Ted DiBiase being the sole survivor of that one. And yeah, it was a gigantic thing. And if that was the beginning of an unprecedented wrestling career, the man won 17 different belts between tag team and hardcore and the world championship and the WWE heavyweight championship. Uh, He had four WWE World Titles, three World Heavyweight Titles, and he is a member of the WWE Hall of Fame, not to mention his infamous WrestleMania streak, which only a couple years ago came to its end, Uh, but nobody will ever reach a streak like that again. I can't think of a single wrestler, I guess probably Shawn Michaels would probably be the only other one I can really think of, who stayed with one company for such a long period of time, despite, you know, injury timeouts, if you will, and he is... Probably one of the most iconic faces in wrestling today or in wrestling period. So those are the ones I give you. Stephen King's It and The Undertaker debuting at Survivor Series. All right. Let's go down to the judgment for the television round. Uh, 1983, you come with the day after in Starcade. 1990, Joe, you had the uh, television debut of Stephen King's It in the 1990s Survivor Series. So let's take a look. We got two TV movies, two wrestling events. First of all, we got the day after monumental TV event. The ratings for this astronomical. Stephen King's It, really popular movie. A lot of debuts in there, like you said. But does that have legs still? Is that still a thing? Is it still popular? Oh, wait. Yes, it is, because they just remade that movie, and it uh, just came out. So you know what? I'm going to have to cancel both of those out. I know the ratings for the day after are huge. They're so much bigger, but I've never seen it. 
I hate to admit that, but I've never seen it. And I don't think it's the best movie ever done on a nuclear holocaust. That's a weird sentence. It's a made-for-television movie. (laughs) It's not even my favorite made-for-television movie about the end of the world, okay? (laughs) You can't give the Cold War one round and then kill it in another round. I'm just going to throw that out It was the end of the Cold War. Happy news. That's what I'm all about. (laughs) But is Russia still a threat? Oh, wait. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you, And you're poo-pooing it. All okay. right. So let's take a look at these <laughs> wrestling events. We got the very first Starcade. Now, if you look at the card for that one, wow. Like you said, the Ric Flair-Harley Race matchup is incredible. Steamboat, Jay Youngblood versus the Briscoes, Piper and Valentine. Charlie Brown defeats the Crate Kabuki. Now, Charlie Brown, that's actually Jimmy Valiant, legendary wrestler. So, and then we take a look at the 1990 Survivor Series with the debut of The Undertaker. I'm very fond of this Survivor Series. Not my favorite Survivor Series. My favorite Survivor Series, I think, was the year before or the year before that where they had all the tag teams. That was awesome. But you know what, Joe? There's something that was said back on a previous episode by another judge, and I'm going to hold true to his ruling. If you bring up something in wrestling, With Coco, beware, you're going to win. Now, Joe, (laughs) I'm going to give you this round. What asshole said that? That would have been Judge Dave Schultz, who knows nothing about wrestling, but knows Coco, (laughs) beware. So in honor of Judge Dave Schultz, I'm going to have to go with Coco, beware. No, that's not the real reason. I got to go with the debut of the dead man. That is huge. Uh, Stephen King's it. Very topical. Not my favorite Stephen King miniseries. That would be The Stand. It runs a close second. Uh, Joe, you take this round by the skin of your teeth. Three to two. You have control of the board heading into the final round. Would you like to go first or would you like to defer? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, You know what? I'm going to defer. All right, Man Crush. You are up for the movies round. What you got, man? Before we go into the movies... Let me just throw this out there that uh, much like Joe, because we post these all the time on our Facebook, facebook.com forward slash dueling decades. We always have what came out that day, whatever it is. So I know a lot of stuff that came out. So I know for a fact Joe is kicking himself because he missed Home Alone by a couple days <laughs> as I am kicking myself for missing the Christmas story that I missed by a couple yeah. days. Uh, but I figured it's just something to think about this holiday season. Uh, with Thanksgiving, those are two big movies for the holidays, and we both missed them. Uh, but there's are mentions of them, even though they don't count. Oddly enough, both of those movies are impossible to miss during the holiday season now. They're on every yeah, oh, five yeah, minutes, sure. every channel. For sure. Shit. What is it? TBS does Christmas Story for 24 straight <laughs> yeah. hours or TNT, whatever the fucking station that uh, Turner has. Smoke there. a huge bowl, sit there for all 24 hours. Man, it's fantastic. <laughs> Just get chair locked. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's see. November 23rd, 1983. Uh, This is one of those movies that if you look at the box, you're just going to go, meh, chick flick. And I totally see that side of the argument, but I guarantee if you watch this movie, you'll be glassy-eyed. I'm glassy-eyed already, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have to admit it with this one, but if you watch this movie, a movie that won five Grammy Awards, when the lights come on after it's over, you're going to be a little misty. I'm telling you. I, I see Mark's face trying to figure it out. 
Uh, I didn't misspeak. This movie won a Grammy for Best Picture, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Actor in a Sporting Role, Best Director, Best Writing. And on top of that, it was nominated for six other Grammys that year or Academy Awards that year. But man crush, uh, Grammy movies don't make a lot of money. Well, this this one did. This uh, It made $108 million at the box office. It's about $260 million in 2019 on an $8 million budget. Uh, the movie starred Shirley MacLaine, Deborah Winger, Jack Nicholson, John Lithgow, Danny DeVito, and Jeff Daniels. Uh, so with a cast like that, you can almost guarantee the movie is going to have some solid acting. The movie I'm talking about is Terms of Endearment. Why does Man Crush know about Terms of Endearment? Well, because my parents owned the RCA disc and it was in our collection. I can even picture the cover of the RCA disc with Shirley MacLaine with her arm around Deborah Winger. And it was like maroon and I'm pretty sure it was a double disc too. I'm getting I'm getting choked up just talking about it. Uh, anyways, it's probably like the ultimate like mother daughter film, but it's really well done. And if you've never seen it, I suggest going out and watching it. It's it's not a chick flick. It's it's a really solid fucking movie. Uh, Terms of endearment. All right, my second pick. Uh, Saturday, November twenty fourth, nineteen eighty three. Disney re released its nineteen forties Mickey Mouse classic, Fantasia. To theaters across the United States. However, on this particular Thanksgiving week, they added an extra special attraction to this film immediately following Fantasia. You know, we watched all the way through and fans would get a sneak peek of the new John Landis 13 minute and 42 second short film that's coming out in a couple weeks. But in order to get an Academy Award consideration, they decided to release the film during the final week of November of 1983. Uh, and I'm sure Joe knows this in order to get considered, you need to at least be, have a theatrical run of seven days. So that's what they did right here. Uh, and that's probably a good thing because this PG rated short ended up winning a Grammy of its own for best music video and a video music award and placed on the national film preservation board in 2009. The John Landis directed video opens up with a disclaimer stating that by creating the short film, Michael Jackson in no way endorsed supernatural practices, which is a bit odd. But the short film that I'm talking about, of course, is Michael Jackson's thriller. Michael Jackson had to put that out because actually he was a Jehovah's Witness at the time, which I didn't even yeah. know. Uh, and he ended up leaving the religion in 1987 over the thriller video. So that little disclaimer didn't even fucking work. Uh, the video was done for somewhere in the neighborhood of a million bucks. Uh, if you look on the web, most websites are going to tell you it was like $500,000. But you start adding up all the rumored companies that were involved with this, and it doubles. You had Showtime, MTV, Michael Jackson's label, Vestron Video fitting the bill. And then they did the entire shoot in like four days. And most videos at the time, they're being done for far less than 100 k But this was a small price to pay for one of the most iconic and well-known music videos of all time. And since Vestron, I love Vestron video. And since they, they tossed in for this video, I think they tossed in like 500 grand. They were given the rights to distribute the entire 45 minute making of thriller video, which went on to sell like 9 million copies or something. Remember when this came on in MTV, it came on in December of 83. And every time they played it on MTV, Joe, you might've been a little young. I was like five and I had an older sister. So I always watched MTV when they played the video immediately when the video was over, it told you when the next time that video was going to come on. Because not only did MTV want to recoup their money that they they only sunk in like 250 or 300 grand or something. 
but there was such demand to see this video that people wanted to know when they were going to catch it because at the time MTV was like listening to the radio. You didn't know what was coming on next. So they would tell you, hey, in an hour from now, Thriller is coming on again. And it's 1983. Not everybody has a VCR at this point. <laughs> right. Exactly. You're right. not recording it. And the thing with his record company actually thought Thriller was had peaked, which is crazy to think about. Thriller, one of the biggest albums ever. They thought Thriller had peaked and they only kicked in 100 grand for this video. They didn't even want to do another video for Thriller. But he talked them into it. He got John Landis involved. Are they fucking glad they did it or what? Because now yeah. that album is like the best-selling album of all time. The video is like, if you you really put together videos that are theatrical movies, that and November Rain are the, like, the only two that pop in my head immediately. It's fucking crazy. And then were you aware that Ola Ray, the, the one that played his girlfriend in the video, she was a Playboy centerfold in June of 1980. Really? I did not realize that, but I found it. it was, yeah, she looks pretty good, too. And then she did it again in 1984 after the video went nuts. Wow. Good for her. Yeah. Good for Ola Ray. So, yeah. So, Terms <laughs> of Endearment and Thriller getting its theatrical release so it can get a Oscar. All right, Joe. It all comes down to this. What do you got from the movies round? Well, I'm not going to lie to you. I actually took a really long route to try and convince you that Home Alone was going to be okay because it was still <laughs> in its opening weekend on the 18th, but that's okay. That's okay. We can work around this. All right. So my first one is going to be a sequel to a classic action movie, highly anticipated at the time, uh, despite the fact that it was not going to feature its original director or its original star, but it does feature the same creature that we all loved the first time i give you the debut on november 21st of predator 2 so the stephen hopkins directed film featured basically everybody you know from the 80s uh <laughs> danny glover gary Busey, ruben blades marita conchita alonzo bill paxton uh robert davi all these morton downey jr figured his way into this somehow and it brings our it brings our predator friend from the jungles to the streets of la uh in the midst of a territorial gang war this movie while definitely not as uh successful as the first one was still a very fun one and a lot of the things that happened in this movie uh became canon for the future movies that came out uh actually probably more backstory on uh predator on the predators was learned in this movie than in the first one so my first movie i give you predator 2 my second movie is not predator 2 so we got that going for us right off the bat <laughs> this one a relatively unknown cast minus its star uh and it went on to be the number three movie uh, in the box office for the entire year and went on to be one of the biggest uh, Oscar winning movies of the entire year. I give you Dances with Wolves. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I remember being in eighth grade, 1990, and my uh, my teacher, I can't remember my teacher's name, but she was a big Kevin Costner fan. Or maybe I was in ninth grade and she made us watch it when it came out on video cassette. So it might have been like 91. It took you a week yeah. to watch the whole movie. Half the class was fucking passed out. <laughs> it I mean, like, it's a really yeah. good movie, but it's okay. just slow. Yeah. That's the only thing. Well, yeah. it's Kevin Costner. They're long movies. <laughs> it's no Waterworld. <laughs> All right, here we go. 
So this movie, which was directed by and starring Kevin Costner, uh, became one of the most successful critical films of the year. It won seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. It also got all the Golden Globes for that this year. It was nominated for five more awards, including Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress. Uh, it got Best Supporting Actor nod in the Golden Globes as well for fellow Canadian Graham Greene. Uh, but it features a prominently Native American cast, and it was very interesting for its time when you are looking for something to be your big movie at a big time of the year and you don't fill it with movie stars. You fill it with one movie star and a bunch of people that most people couldn't name on their best day. And for it to uh, do those kind of numbers and make that kind of money, it's a pretty huge deal. So I'm going to give you Dances with Wolves. Also debuted November 21st. All right. Solid. So let's take a look here. The final matchup, 1983, you had Terms of Endearment, the uh, Deborah Winger classic, which I have never seen. Uh, so I'm going to take your word for it that it's uh, not a chick flick and that it's a good movie. Oh, you'll cry. Oh, I, I cried at Beaches, so yeah, most likely. Oh, it's it's worse. It's worse oh, than man. Beaches. Sounds fun. Make sure I take my Prozac first. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good holiday flick. <laughs> All right, and then you also came with the uh, theatrical release of Michael Jackson's Thriller. That's a, a huge monumental album for Michael Jackson. The music video changed the music industry completely. And I think it's the only music video that I have a vivid memory of the very first time I ever saw it. I remember we had taken a family road trip. I don't even remember where we were going. We were at some flea bag shithole motel. There was nothing to do. So my older sister flips on the TV. MTV was on Michael Jackson's thriller video. They said it was going to be showing in a few minutes. They showed it. It blew my fucking mind, man. Years later, when I found out that it was Rick Baker and all those people that were involved in the special effects of that. It changed movies. It changed music. It's fantastic. Uh, 1990, Joe, you had Predator 2. Uh, not the best Predator movie, I'm going to say. <laughs> Predator is in the movie, though. I will give you points for that. <laughs> uh, it's the it's a weak experience. You get what right, you get. You, you get what you get. Yeah. Uh, but you did come with Dances with Wolves. And that is a fantastic movie. It is very slow. I'll give you that. It's a snore fest, but it is absolutely solid. It won a ton of awards. I've actually have it in my queue right now. I added it to my queue last week, oddly enough. You can't argue with that movie. Like it, don't like it. It tells a fantastic true story. Kevin Costner does a great job in it. So, man, this round is a lot closer than it looks or sounds. But you know what? When it all boils down to it, I got to go with the power of Michael Jackson in 1983's Thriller. That's just Shimon. such a huge monumental video. I remember the first time I saw that. I don't remember the first time I saw Predator 2 or Dances with Wolves. I'm going to start a super negative uh, thing against you now specifically. It's like, well, Michael Jackson didn't support the supernatural. He supported some other shit, and Mark supports <laughs> him. <laughs> I don't support that, but I do support Rick Baker and everyone else that made the Thriller video. The, sp the special effects, that. the choreography. In my opinion, best music video ever made still to this date. Prove me wrong. Justify my love. 
I I, tr- <laughs> I, act- I actually sat there without trying to Google it, and I tried to just think of any video that really stuck in my head. And the November Rain, even though like the video is not even that great, that's the only epic video that I can really think of. Maybe because of the long stay that it had at like the top of TRL or some shit like that, but. I couldn't think of anything. Michael Michael Jackson videos were events, and I I remember a lot of them. Like black or white yes. was a huge event when it came out. It wasn't as big as Thriller by right. any means, but it was still something that people tuned in for the premiere of. Right. Um. What like there were and there were other ones in there as well. But like I like Scream with Heidi right. Janet Jackson, yep. which was like a big deal. You are a hundred percent right on that. And that's why I have to go with Thriller because we wouldn't have had any of those other huge video premieres if it wasn't for Thriller because they were just trying to copy that success because even though each song was completely different and the theme for each video, that cinematic style that he brought to music videos was still there and they were still trying to recapture that. So I am very sorry, Joe. You barely lose this one, Man Crush. You pick up another win by the skin of your teeth. Shout out. Joe, I'm sorry, man. Let it's people know good. where they can hear you on Miscast Commentary. Uh, as always, guys, yeah, Miscast Commentary drops every Friday, except uh, tomorrow we will be airing a special Thanksgiving episode. We will be doing a commentary of Thanksgiving, and we got director slash voice of Turkey, Jordan Downey, and he'll be talking about the movie, and we'll have him over the next couple of weeks. But you can find us anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all the good places, and probably the bad places, too. I don't know those ones, but... Uh, <laughs> the back alley of podcasts. <laughs> Yeah, on the dark web you can get me you can get me in a kidney but uh and then on top of that yeah just find us on uh twitter at miscast podcast and on our facebook page facebook.com slash miscast commentary all right duelers and while you're on the dark web searching for joe's pictures you can also head over to duelingdecades.com where you can check out all of our episodes there subscribe to us on spotify subscribe to us on Castbox and itunes as well and then Head over to Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades where you can join our private group where we have all kinds of new daily retro content. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.